0: Jimmy Jelinek and Dennis Quaid.
1: Our next guest on the pet show is the number one New York Times bestselling author of A Dog's Purpose, W. Bruce Cameron. The book, which is the first in a trilogy, chronicles a dog's journey through four lives via reincarnation and how he looks for his purpose through each of his lives. Released in 2010, the book became an immediate sensation, garnering near universal praise and spent a record 49 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. He followed this up with a sequel in 2012, A Dog's Journey, and completed the trilogy in 2019 with the publication of A Dog's Promise. All told, Cameron's books have been translated into 55 languages and have sold tens of millions of copies worldwide. Cameron began his career as a syndicated humor columnist, often writing about his family. One of those columns became the basis for his first book, Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, and later a People's Choice Award-winning series on ABC starring the late John Ritter. After a fallow period, following the cancellation of the show, Cameron began to formulate the story for what would eventually become a dog's purpose. But it came in fits and starts. And following one of those long nights of the soul, recognizable to most creatives, where you wonder if you have anything left to say, he surrendered himself to prayer. Forsaking what he called his arrogance and asked for deliverance from his creative darkness, It was then that the book's story appeared to him like a vision. From there, it's been a swift ascent, first atop the bestseller list and later the box office, which is where yours truly comes into this tale. I met Bruce Cameron in 2016 on the set of A Dog's Purpose, where I played Ethan in the film adaptation. He immediately struck me as someone who provided profound insight into the human-canine bond and the love that pets bring us and what we reflect back on them. It's this invisible tug of the leash, as he calls it, that love and affection, dedication, and duty, which transcends time and place, giving us a sense of purpose in the lives of our pets and vice versa. Through hours of conversation in between takes, I got to know Bruce and his wife, Catherine, and I'm proud to call him a friend. And I hope this interview, which Jimmy recorded last week, provides insight into his thought process behind his classic books. Despite being in quarantine, Bruce continues to write prolifically. This year alone, he has released seven separate books, mainly for young readers, and completed the script for A Dog's Promise, which is currently in pre-production and for which I'm eager to disappear once again into the role of Ethan. Can you tell? So without further ado, Bruce Cameron, welcome to The Pet Show,
2: Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I know you're super busy. Well, wow, this is going to be fun. Dennis sends his best. We were recording intros and and outros for the next week's magazine format that we do about the the world of pets, and uh, uh, he wanted to say hello. Perfect. Tell him uh, hi to him and to Laura and the peaches. Absolutely. You have so many books out right now at once. Can you tell me everything that? I mean, you have like seven books coming out, I think. Right.
0: Now. <laughs> we call it the Bruceiverse. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I didn't know I was going to write children's books. I didn't think of that as being my thing. But I started a, a younger reader series based on my my other books. Primarily, a dog's purpose is where it all started. I started. dog's purpose i wrote a book called ellie's story which tells the story of the police dog and uh that book did so well and won awards i never won awards for anything so i was pretty excited you know so uh that led to other books based on a dog's purpose and then based on a dog's journey and a dog's way home And, and subsequent to that i've branched out so now I've got, you know, an, we call them the puppy tales. I've got Bailey's story, Molly's story, uh, Ellie's story, Max's story, Toby's story. Uh, and, and now I write stories about dogs that are not at all related to the books, the first books. And that includes my new series, uh, the Lily to the Rescue series, which is for even younger readers. These are what we call these chapter books, and they're for kids that are finally... Graduated from picture books, where there's a picture on every page and a few lines of text, and they're actually reading. But there's pretty much a picture almost every every other page. And uh, but they're they're more interested in a plot. They're more interested in chapters. There's more character development. So that, and we call that Lily to the Rescue. <laughs> and uh, I've got four of those coming out this year. So uh, they're easy. They're fast to write. The illustrations are wonderful. And this dog Lily. This dog, Lily, is so wonderful because she's a rescue dog. She was rescued. She lives at an animal rescue, and she helps rescue other animals, mostly baby animals. So it's it's really uh, it's just an adorable series, and kids are just loving it. And so that's, that's how I wound up with seven books being published this year.
2: Now, your daughter runs a dog rescue foundation in Denver. Is that Lily series part, is, is that inspired at all by... Uh, about her experiences working, you know, within uh, the rescue community. Yeah, it's definitely
0: true that
2: I uh, I was inspired
0: by my daughter Georgia, who started her own uh, rescue in Denver. Specifically, at the time she started it, the municipal shelters were overrun; they were high kill rate throughout the city, and uh, she saw an opportunity to help save animals who would otherwise be put down. So that became, she calls it Life is Better Rescue is the name of it. And uh, you can find it at lifeisbetter.org. She uh, she specializes in death row animals. And she certainly, like Lily and Lily to the rescue, she uh, rescues more than just dogs and cats. She's rescued horses. Uh, She's rescued chickens. She actually has chickens living at her house in Denver. Uh, so <laughs> She has managed to uh, manage to turn it into a family business, if you will. And I'm involved with that. I'm on the board, uh, and it's just it's just the best work because you're you're helping animals who, through no fault of theirs, find themselves caught up in systems and situations that they don't understand and can't survive
2: without. And you've said that she's a great pet matchmaker, in that she's great at matching rescues with people. Uh, you know. How so, what, you know, uh, how does she match with people in her work? She, uh, she will listen to what people are looking for in a dog, mostly dogs,
0: because cats, I would think, well, cats have big personalities as well, but uh, when it comes to a dog, because that's, that's my experience, she got us our dog, Tucker. Tucker was dropped off at a municipal shelter just hours after birth. With his siblings, and when they opened the box at the municipal shelter and found these poor animals, they didn't have any way to, to save them. They, they they need to bottle feed little puppies. Well, they didn't didn't have that kind of staff, so they called my daughter and they said, "We've got uh, we've got these little, little newborn puppies. What can what can you do?" And she said, "Well, I don't know. I've got a I don't have the staff either, but I do have a German Shepherd who just leaned her pups, and I wonder I wonder what would happen." So they grab this box of puppies walk in they eat, and put these puppies next to the german shepherd mommy dog and this and this big german shepherd just uh sprawled out and let these dogs uh nurse and that's how these that's how these puppies were saved and so she calls me and she says i've got the perfect dog for you dad and i said how so and she said well he's just this you know she she knows that we uh my my wife is uh, a movie director and i'm a an author and so uh, there's a lot of time where we don't really leave the house this is before COVID. we didn't leave the house much and so we needed a dog who was chill who would just hang out and be with us and and be happy with that and so when she showed up with this little puppy uh he's 25 pounds of scruff uh there's no the the, the
2: DNA t- test came back that he's got a little bit of every kind of dog in the world in him <laughs> and tucker was the inspiration for a lot of the dogs of christmas am I, am I am i correct in that
0: yeah you nailed it thank you yes the dogs of christmas uh which is, which is a, best, a best-seller, if not on the official list, is on other lists every Christmas because it's such a great dog story, dog gift. It's, it's puppies at Christmas, Jimmy. I, I don't think anybody can come up with anything more cheerful and no. uplifting than puppies at Christmas.
2: <laughs> that pretty much uh, is a metaphor for pure joy. <laughs> it really is hard. to. I don't know what else to put in there. Maybe a chocolate milkshake or something. <laughs> That's about it and tucker he he's really inspires a lot of your work of, of late am i am i correct in terms of trying to think from his point of view or in terms of, of in terms of his personality yeah tucker
0: thinks and tucker claims credit for everything he's he he believes that he's my ghostwriter i i would say if he's he needs to get off the, the dog bed if he's going to do some work i'd like to see it now he's he uh well animals in general and dogs in particular they've got this this way of looking at the world that's a little different and in the third book in the series "A dog's promise which i i should mention because i'm pretty proud of it it's the costco book club pick for july and uh it's the third book which means dennis needs to needs to get ready to come back and play with more dogs because we uh we've sold it to amblin and it's in development right now and that's a dog's promise and in a dog's promise the people are in real sharp contrast to the dogs. The dogs are, as they always are, loving and forgiving and optimistic. And the people are going through kind of some rough times and they need a dog in their lives to help them stay on the straight path. And that's what I think dogs do for us. And I think that's the promise of every dog is that they will help us navigate some of the most difficult things that we've got going on, including what's happening in the world right now. I think A Dog's Promise is a, is a good book for our times because it captures that essential element of dogs, which is their joy.
2: So much of your work and so much of your film and, and the films I feel are centered on, on themes of, of redemption and the ability for people to find their way home. And these are universal themes in in, in literature and, and great storytelling. Is there a scene or a chapter in your work that sums up those themes the most? Do you think?
0: Oh yeah, the scene for me that that sums it all up for me is in a dog's purpose. It's actually uh, it's interesting because it's a shot that is sort of sort of strays away from the dog narrative and takes us to a universal uh, point of view. And it's Dennis Quaid as Ethan Montgomery sitting at the table by himself in this farmhouse. And you get the sense that here is this here is this man who through uh, just some bitter uh, some some things have made him very bitter about life is all alone. And it, and it captures for me how utterly alone one is without a, a pet. Uh, because the, the very next scene is he goes back to the pound and picks up Bailey and that dog changes his life. And it, that's the message of a dog's purpose is that a dog in your life can change everything. And that's what happens. So that scene for me really some really puts it together. You're alone and lost if you don't have some love in your life. And if you need love in your life and, and it's not working out for you on, on Tinder, or something. Then what you do is uh, you get yourself a dog, and you will get that love.
2: And did you draw upon anything from your own life? Like, was there a point in time in your past where you know you were enveloped in 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 that loneliness or that darkness, where a pet rescued you in that way?
0: No, uh, I I wasn't always an author. I used to have other jobs and uh, sometimes I'd come back. I I had a lot of jobs where I was on the road. I would fly in after having been gone for a week. And this is when my kids were teenagers, or at least a couple of them were. And I'd walk in the house and uh, no one said hi. No one jumped up to see me except, except our dog. And the dog would come running up to me <clears throat> as if I was a soldier coming back from the war and would be so excited to see me. And it really, for me, it's, it sums it up. It's like you come home, you've been working a lot, you're kind of depressed, maybe work isn't like going that well, uh, but you're, and your head's hanging down. But then as soon as that, that dog sees you, it changes your changes your day because the dog is so happy to see you.
2: Absolutely. People sometimes don't recognize the, the power that dogs have in our lives, you know, not just to, you know, rescue us from loneliness, but also to, you know, connect us with other people in terms of our relationships. You know, they, I feel like they are often the glue that keeps families together and keeps relationships together.
0: Well, I I agree with that, and and uh, I'll probably wind up writing a book someday called "Dog Custody" because I think that uh, from what I've heard, when people get into a situation where their relationship is really struggling, it often comes down to the dog. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I I want to go back to the origin of a, of a dog's purpose for for people who might not be uh, aware of, of of how this came about. Uh, you said that you had gotten the inspiration for a dog's purpose while riding your bike in Colorado and that you had met a dog that reminded you so much of, of your very first dog.
0: Yeah, I was, um, uh, the inspiration, that's a good way to put it because uh, the the seed that was planted was when I was in my early thirties and I was riding my mountain bike in Colorado and I was riding right through this tiny mountain town and there was a house with a yard and a fence and there was a dog that came running up uh, to, to say hello. So I stopped because I always stopped to say hi to the dogs. And there was just something about this, what, the way this dog was looking at me, uh, engaging. Uh, our eyes were locked and the dog was wagging so hard and was kind of hitting her tail on the ground the way my, my very first dog used to do. It was It was uncanny. The sense that I had that this dog might very well be my very first dog, and and uh, I rode off with this this odd conviction that this might be a possible thing. And then years later, years later, I am driving up the coast of California with uh, my then girlfriend, and she turns to me and says. I will never have a. I will never have another dog. And I think it was because her her dog had died and she had never had a dog except for as an adult. And and no one prepared her for what that's like. She had no idea. So I'm hearing that she would never have a dog means that uh, she can't be my girlfriend anymore. Right. Because I'm not I'm not going to do that. I've got to have dogs. But faced with, uh, you know, I didn't have any good choices, I decided to tell her a story and it just sort of came out of me. I I wanted to convince her that the same love that she had with her dog was, was still there available to her if she just opened her heart. And it might not be the same dog, but it would be the same kind of love. And so I told her a story about a reincarnating dog who remembers each life and goes on eventually to learn lessons that enable... Him, Bailey, to save his original boy. So she said at the end of it, she says, "Well, you've got to write that as a book." And purpose.
2: And I read that in another interview. I was a it was a great interview you did with the Christian Post last year. That you were struggling with finding the the story itself, and you said that it that the the story came the story came out of you from from prayer that you were in this dark place because of some self-proclaimed arrogance on your part and you were and you were just sort of stuck and, and the plot materialized from there?
0: Yeah, the, um, I became very arrogant because I had written a book called Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter and we got it on the air as a TV show uh, starring John Ritter and that I had a big bestseller and I sold that into development. So I started to believe that it was all me, that I hadn't done it all. And um, some really tragic things happened, including John Ritter passing away. And suddenly I didn't have a career anymore. And I was i was lost. I was pitching ideas and taking meetings. And I started to notice that uh, I was encountering skepticism in these, these meetings. It was like, yeah, you had a hit, but you're done now. And this was quite a while ago and I didn't feel like I was done. But I didn't know what to do. And then it occurred to me that in my arrogance, I had uh, I had neglected to uh, uh, give credit to where it all came from. You know, I'm I am good at telling stories and I have always been good at telling stories for as long as I can remember. So I uh, I, I didn't come by that uh, through hard work. I was that was a gift. I was arrogantly thinking that it was something that I did instead of believing and understanding that it was something that was that was given me. So I turned and I said, I'm, I am sorry for my arrogance. It wasn't due to me. This was a gift and I need help. I think the, the most arrogant thing you can do is not ask for help when you need it. And so I said, I, I can't do this on my own. I need help the next couple of days after that i'm driving up, it, up the coast of california and when that story came into my head it arrived as if i was downloading it off of a server it was full the whole story was there the dialogue was there the characters the dogs i even i even knew the dog's names and i don't i don't know where this came from because when i normally when i'm building a book or building a story if i'm you know in a dog's promise i started with this idea that there was a dog who was a service dog for a special needs boy, and that the family would be torn apart by the boy's condition, and that the dog would have to come back several times to to make the whole thing work to fulfill a very important promise. But but it came to me in little pieces, and I would take a bike ride, or I would go for a walk, or I, and and I'd come up with another piece. That's how it goes. But not a dog's purpose. A dog's purpose was. Delivered to me whole cloth, and I was absolutely able to capture the thing in, into a voice recorder on that car ride, and then sit down and write it. And I've never had a writing experience like that. And I believe it was because I prayed for help. I opened myself up to the possibility that that I could have a personal miracle in my life if I just allowed it to happen.
2: Those are dark moments, you know. As a writer, I've I've been in that position where you're trans- transitioning from one stage of your career to your next, or there is a setback, and you can feel the energy of the room absolutely against you. And you feel all of a sudden that it's over for you, or they think it's over for you. And it's a, it's a profoundly dark moment in how you deal with that and how you move forward with that. Did you have dogs in your life during that point uh, when, you know, that darkness was sort of settling over you? Yeah, that's a great question because
0: interestingly, no. Uh, At that point, my dog had died. Carly had died and I had moved out to L.A. and was living in a tiny uh, apartment and couldn't really feature a dog at that point in my life. I couldn't figure out how I would make that work. I was trying to make new friends. I moved from the mountains of Colorado and I was, I was trying to establish myself here. And I guess I just I just thought, yeah, I don't have room in my life. Uh, when I finally, when, when Tucker finally came charging into our home, I found myself asking myself, why did I wait so long? What, what, was, what was I thinking? That, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really hard thing to say goodbye to your friend, to say goodbye to your dog. And we all know that when that, that perfect day when we get a, a new dog, that it's going to end in a really bad day. We all know that, but there's just something magical about having a dog. And as painful as it is to know that that is in your future, there are other things in your future that are also unavoidable that you need to face up to. And, and I think having a dog makes it easier.
2: This is an interesting time for us to have this conversation because one of the stories that I've just finished working on is about this company called Viagen Cloning. And they're a Dallas-based company that for $50,000 will clone your dog for you, and uh. 35,000 will clone your cat. And what comes back <laughs> and what comes back is an identical twin of the pet, but yeah. born, but born at a later date. And I actually got to talk to one of the people who cloned their pets. And for them, they really wanted to have the same pet for the rest of their life. The idea of having to say goodbye to that pet was was far too painful for them. And in essence, they were able to continue the life of this pet through cloning. And I tried to ask them like, but it isn't really the same dog. But they're like, no, but they have the same <clears throat> gestures. and." But at the end of the day, it was really, you know, they're wanting to avoid having to say goodbye or having to avoid that, that end. But there is something so profound in having to deal with the end and dealing with loss and trying to find your way through that. And, you know, that is a part of life, those transitions. Yeah.
0: To me, the lesson of the dogs is that, um, you know, they they're here for a very short period of time. I mean, you see, you, you, if a dog gets two decades of life, it makes the news. It is really unusual, and it's not unusual at all to have a dog pass away after just a few years. And yet, you look at how dogs approach things, you look at how excited they are for every single wakey moment. And the, the lesson of the dogs is that they're here for a short period of time and they greet everything with joy and optimism and we human beings if you think about it we're here for a very short period of time we can learn a real lesson by trying to live like the dogs by trying to infuse every moment with happiness and being optimistic and not dwelling on the negative but rather shaking it off and and having fun and if we could if we could just do that think what a great life that would be and so Yeah, I can't imagine cloning Tucker because, as you say, Tucker is teaching us a profound lesson, and I am grateful for that lesson, and I'm trying to learn that lesson.
2: Speaking of special dogs, I wanted to talk about Shelby for a moment. You know, she's obviously an incredible story. How did she come to the project and beyond that, you know, now that as you're making these films, what do you look for in casting when it comes to finding like the right dog?
0: Oh yeah. That was so interesting. You know, so Shelby is the star, the movie star dog of A Dog's Way Home. That's the one without Dennis. A Dog's Way Home, we decided, we being the producers decided that we wanted to cast a rescue dog. In fact, all the dogs needed in that movie needed to be rescues. So, the book itself and the story itself for a Dog's Way Home concerns the uh, bizarre law in Denver that bans pit bulls and does so on the basis of the opinion of the animal control department that a dog is a pit bull. There's no DNA test. There's nothing done to determine that you have a pit bull other than they just look at it and say, yeah, that's a pit bull. In theory, they can look at a poodle and say that's a pit bull. And so, uh, when I wrote the book, I pushed hard for the publisher to put a, to find me a cover image for the book that was not immediately recognizable uh, as a pit bull. We found a pit bull mix, mostly Rottweiler, German Shepherd, and pit bull. The story concerns uh, the animal control department kind of cracking down on this unfortunate dog and because of other reasons not got to do with animal behavior or even anything other than the family gets sideways with some powerful people so Shelby sorry uh, Bella is the name of the dog and Bella is sent away sent uh, hundreds of miles away from Denver on a temporary basis in order for the family to relocate to a Pitbull friendly town and uh but Bella doesn't understand uh as far as Bella is concerned this is a horrible mistake to be separated from her person so she jumps the fence and then starts on a two-year journey back to her back to her people when we decided to cast Bella when when Sony picked up the movie and we were we're in produ- pre-production. We're looking for the star, Blue Star dog. They took a look at the cover and they said, this is uh, this is what we're looking for. And then we did a nationwide search. We had a couple of missed starts. But eventually we located a dog who is living in a shelter, an animal shelter in outside of Nashville, out in the, out in the wilds of Tennessee, actually. And it was interesting because this dog... been rescued it was living in a landfill it was a junkyard dog it was ownerless and we have no idea how this dog survived eating garbage and being infested with parasites and the animal control got her and started feeding her and loving her and we went down to visit and when i say we it was an animal trainer who was going to be the trainer for the movie it was my and the animal trainer was there to make sure the dog had the right temperament and could be trained and it was Catherine Michon, because she's a movie director, and she had to sort of assess whether or not this dog uh, had the right look for being in front of the camera. And I went along, and I had no purpose whatsoever. I, they could have left me home, but I had never had Nashville hot chicken before, and I really, really wanted it. So I
2: – That's worth the trip, man. That's worth the trip alone. Oh, yeah. And after 15 minutes
0: with Shelby, this this junkyard dog – Teresa said, I can absolutely train this dog. And Shelby is, Shelby would just cuddle with us. Shelby was so loving. In fact, her story is so compelling to me that I wrote a children's book called Shelby's Story uh, that is about Shelby and her rescue from the junkyard and what her origins must have been like and how scary a life it must have been for her. And in that story, uh, Shelby's Story, we didn't put Shelby on the cover. We put a, a puppy because Shelby was already full grown. But working with Shelby on set was this dog just has this ability to look at the camera and and emote. It was really amazing. We got such great footage. It was, she really was a great movie star. And then we, we also rescued a dog named Amber. Amber is, uh, is more physical than Shelby and Amber loves snow. Whereas Shelby being from Tennessee was like, what is this? Was not happy with all the snow on the ground. So Amber does all the stunts. If you see if you see a dog playing in the snow, that's Amber, not Shelby.
2: And what is the training regimen for a dog to get them movie ready? Like, what did Shelby have to learn to be able to be in front of the camera? That's a great question
0: because the dogs are trained with love and treats. They don't ever hear the word no. They are never uh, spoken to harshly. Uh, they are therefore sort of coaxed into the behaviors that we want to see. And the first one is kind of the most important, which is go to your mark, which is a, it, be, it starts out as a big thing and eventually becomes a plastic disc on the ground that the dog will run to. And then the dog has to be trained to just sort of saunter up to this thing. And at first they they go charging up and they jump on it, but after a while they get, oh, I get a better treat if I just sort of walk up to it. And so uh, with that, if you think about a motion picture, the dog has to be in motion. And so the dog is in motion most of the time. And so you get a lot of shots of the dog just walking from one place to another. And then you know every stunt has to be carefully practiced when we we had a scene where uh shelby as bella is digging in the snow so they took shelby to the beach and they buried a box with treats in it and uh shelby would learn to there was a little sound that was emitted by the box and so she would learn to dig for that buzzer and when she dug it up she got to have the treats that were inside but then when we shot the scene it was a very tense moment because we were on the side of a mountain, we were running out of daylight, and we had a permit that ended that day. So we had to capture this critical scene where the dog is digging in the snow because a man has been trapped by an avalanche. And the, the person operating the buzzer was on the wrong channel, and so a different buzzer was buzzing, not the one in the snow, but rather one that was on a cart. And Shelby was very confused. And, you know, she you can tell she really wanted to please everybody but she just was confused she didn't know where to go uh and we're so everything was getting more and more tense which i'm sure shelby could pick up on and then finally uh somebody said well the, it's making noise back here and then we figured it out and then shelby was a champ she got it in one she, she got it in no one or she got it in one shot
2: i was just about to ask in terms of you know the expectations of the dog performing in front of the camera do you think that the dogs understand the stakes that are involved when they're performing in front of the camera in terms of hitting their marks? Do you think they feel the pressure? I do.
0: I think think though that it's less about pressure and more about pleasing everybody. I certainly got that sense from the hero dogs in A Dog's Journey and A Dog's Purpose. These dogs um, were just so eager to please but they also were, they were well-trained. If I, you know, I've watched enough dog movies now that I can always tell when a dog is like looking off camera and it's like, like just focused. And I know that they're looking at their trainer and they're not paying attention to what's going on. And so for, for us the way the dogs were trained is that very often the trainer would be sort of in the scene, obviously not on camera, but in the scene enough that the dog was accepting the presence of all the other people as this is, it's, it's like having guests in your living room. Uh, you know, your dog is like excited. I mean, you're, they're your dog. So they're more interested in what's going on with you, but they're also just sort of like paying attention to the other people and interacting with them. And then if the, if you've taught your dog to do a trick, uh, Peaches uh being taught to to jump like Bailey does in the in the movie, jump over the couch. If you've taught the dog the trick, the dog can't wait to show you because uh they know how happy it makes you. So that's that's what happens on set. I think it's I, I've never seen a dog be unhappy with any of the stuff that we're asking them to do. They seem just to be delighted to have all this attention, to have treats, to have people loving them, and the screenwriter is not happy. He's in a tent on, a, on the side of a mountain, in the snow, <laughs> and he's trying to type, and it was so cold on that, in that tent that my, my hard drive froze, and by that I mean it, it literally broke because it was so cold. That's that's how cold it was. But the dog had his, Shelby had her own tent. She had heaters. She had a warm blanket and she had all these treats and love. And I was like, why can't we treat the screenwriters the way you weren't treating the dogs?
2: That's pretty much an essential level on where the writer in Hollywood is on the totem pole. You are well <laughs> below the dog. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's exactly right.
2: And um, how involved is the, the studio get in terms of selecting these dogs? Because I'm, I'm curious, because there's there's a big business around it. You know, there's potential merchandise, you know, there's a lot of profit yeah. potentially around the dog. Like are they market testing the dog to see what kind of breed reacts best with the market and with consumers? Like there must be a lot of business and decisions to be made behind selecting and casting these animals. Well, I, you know, I don't know that there's
0: that much of of that sort of thing going on. And the the reason is, is that, you know, you just got to figure for a studio executive, it's going to be difficult to cast a dog uh, and have the dog trained. That's not their area of expertise. Right. So, but there is a sense, I mean, I think the director probably has much more input in terms of what the dog looks like. The screenplay of A Dog's Way Home, A Dog's Purpose, they, the dogs were pretty well described. Uh, then decisions had to be made though. Like I, in a dog's purpose, the, the novel, the book cover is, is an aging Labrador because as the final incarnation of the dog, uh, he's a Labrador. Labradors don't really, uh, photograph very well. When you're trying to make a movie with a Labrador, their eyes sort of vanish in their dark faces. So the decision was made to cast a, a red-golden named Trip to play Bailey as a young dog. And then this magnificently expressive, older, uh, big dog that was a mix of a St. Bernard and a Bernese mountain dog. His name was Bolt. And he played the final incarnation. He played the last life of Bailey uh, at the end of A Dog's Purpose. And he had, he had these most expressive eyes. I think the studio just said you know, to the director, hey good luck. They don't want to take the responsibility, I don't believe, for casting, picking a dog that then can't be trained. They, they really leave it up to the experts.
2: Right. Now, your first dog growing up in Michigan, from what I understand, was a black lab named Cammy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How did Cammie impact your life as a child? Obviously that set the mold, I guess, for all of your future dogs and for your understanding of the importance of animals in your life. Yeah, I was, I was exactly the
0: same age when I met Cammie that Ethan is in a dog's purpose when he meets Bailey. I was, I was eight years old. That dog came into, into the backyard and into my life with all the puppy enthusiasm you get out of an eight week old Labrador puppy. And we, we bonded in an instant. And then I just remember everywhere. This is back at a time when people didn't really fence in the yards very much. So the yard was like open to the world. And I was just one of a pack of boys who would run up and down the streets. And I just remember Cammie running with us. It was like we were, we had another playmate and it wasn't long before my parents discovered that they, they liked dogs a lot better than people. So they started, they started getting more and more dogs. And so there was, there were three kids in my family and there were three dogs always. And so I just grew up understanding that life, life was populated with dogs and uh, I even had a dog in college. So I think that Cammie started it all. And my understanding of dogs started with Cammie. I certainly wasn't a great dog owner at age eight. Something that I would I would say is true is that when you have children, you need to be very careful with how the children uh, are treating the dog because kids may not understand just how what delicate personalities dogs have. And they might shout no at the dog uh, too much because they're just kids you know they don't know and they're, they're probably emulating uh, adults and and thinking well this is what you do with a dog but my dad was very careful to make sure that we understood that uh that was not our role we were not cammy's trainer we were we were uh actually in the family in the family hierarchy we were less important than the dogs and so it was really important to my father that we respected that and i would i would Jenny, anybody who is getting a dog and they have and has children to keep that in mind
2: that's a great lesson as a writer you've described yourself as this is a quote a bystander to the magnificent dance and we record our witness what have you witnessed over your lifetime that inspired bailey's story to continue in a dog's journey
0: well, that's an, that's an interesting one. I referred to this a little while ago in that the dogs will have such optimism and the dogs will not really understand the complexities that are the human soul and psyche. And in A Dog's Journey, the character of Gloria, the mother, is, and it's, it's much darker in the book than it is in the movie, Gloria is a very complex person and uh, and and not, I would say, not a good person. Not and in fact, in fact, my readers did a. Uh, I did a survey of my readers. We've got a fan club, and Gloria of all the characters I've ever written was considered to be the most evil. And Gloria was just a bad mom. I've I've got some of my. I've got a mystery series. There's a serial killer. I've got. I've written about the Paleolithic, and there's like people that do murder and and. and no, it was Gloria. Gloria was the one that they thought was the absolute worst character. So anyway, that understanding that a dog will will help guide you through life, even when you encounter characters like Gloria, that was an important relation for me. And, it, and it, it led to me wanting to continue a dog's purpose with a dog's journey. And now, of course, a dog's promise. A dog's promise, I set up for myself the challenge of, well, what if... What if a family is really stressed and really being pulled apart? Could a dog glue it all back together? And yes. <laughs> yes is the answer. And that's that's how a dog's promise unfolds.
2: And is Gloria based on anyone? Or is she just, you were trying to, or was she an amalgam of, of evil people you, you, you'd met over your life? Yeah, that's a great question because I've
0: discovered that I do characters different than a lot of writers. I start out with characteristics that I write down on a piece of paper. So for Gloria, I started with, well, she's a uh, narcissist and she is resentful that she has a child. She's a widow. She is a single mom who doesn't want to be a mom and who resents her daughter for existing. I wrote those things down. I didn't, I don't know anybody like that. But I thought once I got into the character of Gloria, I started to really understand. But that's how I do my that's how I do my characters. I don't base them on anybody I know. I admire authors that can do that. I guess I don't feel like I know anybody well enough to be able to write a character based on them.
2: You just knew that you needed somebody that had these characteristics in order to create the stakes in the narrative to propel the story.
0: Exactly right. That's what, that's what I felt I needed to have because I wanted to, uh, you know, every book in the, a dog's purpose series is different uh, in a dog's purpose. It's Bailey, Bailey, Bailey coming back as different dogs with different owners in a dog's journey. uh, The dog comes back to be with CJ every single time somehow finds his way back to CJ in every life. And uh, so it's a magical premise. And then in a dog's promise, the the focus is more broad. It's a whole family that needs help and the dog keeps reappearing in their lives. It's an angel dog this time. And an angel dog who is sent to help this family by Ethan. That's why I, I uh, Dennis, asked me, am I in the next one? And I said, oh yeah, you're, you're in a tennis. So, he, and he's already, he's already, he's ready to go. He,
2: he's very much ready to go. You know, you're talking about angel dogs, and then you also talk about heart dog. And these dogs, you know, beyond the fantastical elements that they bring, you know, there's also the metaphor of an angel dog as a dog that literally saves you. Can you sort of go deeper into the idea of heart dogs and angel dogs? well yeah
0: because you know there are so many people who say this one dog this dog is uh my savior in many ways this dog is my best friend you know as people when we meet someone and we might say well this person is the one or this individual is my best friend for life we we make declarations like that but we we might make that declaration in our 20s and then by the time we're 40 We've changed a lot and perhaps that person has as well. And, uh, and maybe they're not your best friend anymore. Maybe they're not the one anymore. But a dog will never let you down. A dog's gonna grow up to be the dog they are and then they're gonna be steady and faithful and uh, exactly the dog you can depend on for the rest of their lives. So it, it's absolutely true that you're gonna meet a dog and it's it's gonna be the one. Now that doesn't mean you won't have another one because as we know, dogs are here for a very short period of time. But it is, in my opinion, absolutely true that if you open your heart and and you ask for an angel dog, you're gonna get one. And an angel dog in your life just means that you have a creature capable of loving you, even at a spiritual level. And that's what you need. That's what everybody needs.
2: Dennis told me that he committed to the first film before he even saw the script. And it was just based on a one-sentence pitch from his agent. And he said, Stop, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start crying. And I refuse to cry <laughs> for my agent. And he committed right there. And he, but because he knew instinctively that it would fall into this canon of great dog movies in, in Hollywood, where there is a tradition of the dog movie, you know, like Old Yeller and yes where there's a, a dog, and it dies, and there's generally a boy, and there's a lot of crying. How do you feel the movie fits into this canon of, of dog movies, and what makes for a great dog movie? What are those ingredients, and sort of, in the idea of the, the Hollywood canon of the dog movie?
0: It's absolutely, in my opinion, got to do with that theme we were just discussing, where a dog comes into your life and makes everything better. And then, of course, as you say, there there's there's a lot of crying. That's be- That's because uh, in dog movies in general, the dog dies in the end. But in a dog's purpose, the dog doesn't die in the end because the dog lives forever. And that's how we are able to get a dog's journey and a dog's promise is because the dog is consistently coming back to help people. And that's, I mean, I think that the the a dog a classic dog movie has a noble character has a dog who is noble and wise and loving, and helps people and then from there they they go on to uh, greater things and that's you know they wind up in heaven and uh, I and I I believe that I I do believe all dogs go to heaven and I believe that it wouldn't be heaven without them so I I think that's that's at the, that's at the heart but you're absolutely right every. Every decade or so, there's a classic dog movie that comes out, and then and people just point to it, and and uh, it's interesting because Dennis says that when he is when people talk to him about the great movies he's been in, uh, a dog's purpose always comes up.
2: What other dog movies do you think fall into that canon? I mean, obviously Old Yeller, and then there you know there's your movies. Are there others that that you hold up?
0: Well, look, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna tell you something here, which is that. Uh, third book, A Dog's Promise, is the most popular reader-ranked book that I have ever written. And so it's a natural to be made into a film. And so I'm, I'm evading your question because instead of promoting the competition, I'm going to tell you that A Dog's Promise is going to be that great, great uh, American uh, dog story. But I, I, you know, you mentioned Old Yeller, but you know, Old Yeller ends so tragically that yeah, I can't. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen the movie because I read the book, and when I read the book, I, I literally threw it across the room when I was done. I was just absolutely furious that w- w- the way Old Yeller ends. I went to see Marley and Me, and it was a great movie. You fall in love with Marley, and then at the end, they dig a hole and throw Marley in it. I'm like, this is not, this is not my idea of a great dog movie. To me, a great dog movie doesn't have that tragic element.
2: It doesn't yeah. need to have tragedy. It can have redemption in it, which is more uplifting and it actually makes you want to sit through the thing as well and, and it doesn't yeah. destroy you. Right, right,
0: you know, The Incredible Journey. What a great movie for pet lovers and uh, and the remakes. It, it's a little dated when I, when I read I read The Incredible Journey because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't channeling that book for A Dog's Way Home, and because A Dog's Way Home is a very similar story. A dog needs to find his way back home. The thing about The Incredible Journey is, is it's hard for me to believe that when I was in fourth grade, that was my favorite book in the world. It's a little dull. But having said that, maybe just tastes change over time. And So now where we are is that books need to be more exciting and thrilling. And hopefully that's the kind of book that I'm writing now.
2: It's, it's funny that you say that though, because A Dog's Way Home became a reader favorite, perhaps because of its lack of fantastical elements, that this actually does happen, that people do get separated from their dogs and they do find their way home. Yeah, thanks for that.
0: I mean, clearly we don't know if dogs reincarnate, but that's certainly the magical premise for a dog's purpose, a dog's journey, and a dog's promise that the dog keeps coming back to life. But you're right, in A Dog's Way Home, not only is Pitbull banishing happening every day in Denver, but there are dogs that get separated from their people and then somehow find their way back home, sometimes over hundreds of miles in, in, in many, many days, weeks, and months. That's the story of Bella in A Dog's Way Home, a dog who has to find her way back to her people over a couple hundred miles of, of Rocky Mountain territory. And along the way, some things happen that are a little fantastical, because for a dog to survive in the Colorado, rakeasy, which is very hostile, something amazing has to happen, and that's what A Dog's Way Home is all about.
2: Is there anything new that you're working on that, that you can talk about with yeah. like, like within the series that, that people might not know about and we can get them excited? Yes, because in October I've got a book coming out called A Dog's
0: Perfect Christmas, and it is a story of a modern American family that is just uh, having a having a personal crisis, and uh, into this mix comes this, this little puppy, and that puppy is the catalyst for the for everything to reset. The whole family it's as if they're playing musical chairs, and they get up and they shuffle and they all sit down. You've got the a dysfunctional old man, the grandfather, a grieving widower who. Uh, bonds with almost implausibly with a teenage girl because they have to run the house because the father's job is imperiled and the mother is in the hospital. And you'd think a puppy would upset the balance, but it's actually the puppy who provides the balance. And I'm really proud of it. I feel like I really captured the voices of the characters pretty well. There is dog uh, point of view in it, but it's not Like my other dog POV books, it's not strictly from the dog's POV, it kind of jumps around. And uh, that's called Dog's Perfect Christmas, and that'll be out in October. It's going to make a great gift book, too. It's a beautiful,
2: beautiful book. That's all the time we have today on The Pet Show. I want to thank our guest W. Bruce Cameron for speaking with us. Stay tuned next Tuesday for another episode of The Pet Show. And if you haven't already done so, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours and give us five stars. It really makes a huge difference. The Pet Show is brought to you by Audio Up Media and is written and produced by me, Jimmy Jelinek, and co-hosted by Dennis Quaid. Executive producers are Jared Gustat and Dennis Quaid. Our editor is Bill Marks, and our story producer is Emma Rapold. We'll talk to you later.